From the creators of Relevant Magazine, this is the Relevant Podcast. November 11th, 2019, you're listening to The Relevant Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Huckabee, over here in Nashville, Tennessee, and back there in our studios in Orlando, Florida, we have our illustrious producer, Chandler Strang. Hello. And out there in Loveland, Virginia, oh, it's always good to be able to talk to our friend, Jesse Carey. Hello, hello. And joining us today on The Relevant Podcast, we've been looking forward to this one, been trying to make it happen for a while, I'm glad it finally worked out. She's the author of the best-selling book, Own Your Every Day, host of the podcast, She from Indianapolis, Jordan Lee Dooley joins us. Hi, Jordan. Hey, friends. How you doing? <laughs> Good. <laughs> Jordan, Thanks for, this has uh, been... Uh, thank, we, yeah. we're, it's always nice when we have a... When, this is kind of an excuse for us to just hang out with people we want to hang out with anyway, under the guise of it being a professional... <laughs> piece of content I'm so we're, really we're just fans that we're able to con you into doing this yeah we appreciate you 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 joining us today jordan hey you know what i love when you can blend work and fun and call it mm-hmm. work and it's not really even feeling like work <laughs> it's, <laughs> so hey, it's like the four-hour work. work week or whatever like the secret <laughs> to that book wasn't yeah like i picked up that book one time and was like all right this is sweet this guy's hacked it and you only got to work four hours but this real secret is just if you love what you do you're never working so it's yes. only like four hours of real work and you need to do fun stuff like this all the time yep. uh jordan i know i know you're a big uh uh college football fan is that is that's that's correct right well i would say yes we are quite the big football family given uh, my husband's background and our dating background yeah big college football so we've got a soft place in our heart toward uh <laughs> toward the football culture any opportunity i can talk sports on the relevant podcast i do because uh, <laughs> a lot of people who come on have no desire to talk about it but how do you how do you how do you feel so far about the college football season and if you had to name i not to put you on the spot but the top four going into like a playoff situation who do you like right now <laughs> oh my gosh okay well here's the thing my husband's much more versed at the uh at the rankings okay. and uh predictions but what i can say is that i am very proud of my hoosiers because this is the first year Year in sure. a, a very long time that they are officially ranked. We just uh, are currently, as of today, re- ranked at 24, and they're bowl eligible. So it is a really exciting thing for us uh, to see the Hoosiers doing well. I mean, they've never been a big football school. It's definitely a big uh, basketball school. So to see the football yeah. team rallying like they are, honestly, is all I care about. I'm like, all the other schools can do whatever they want. I'll be here <laughs> watching them beat Nebraska <laughs> and beat everybody else. So it was, uh, it's been fun. We were working out about two weeks ago, two and a half weeks ago was the Nebraska game. You played Nebraska. We went to Indiana University. That's where I met my husband. And we're, in, we're at the gym and we're working out. And 
I look over and my husband's not working out. He's just yelling at the TV in the gym. And I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, we're about to beat Nebraska, you know? And I'm like, what? So that's really what my energy has been focused on. I wish I had a little bit more uh, to say about everybody else, but I have been hyper-focused on my alma mater. <laughs> no, that's that's the that's the spirit of a true fan is because you really only care about your team. And I don't know if you know this, but Tyler over here is from Nebraska. So yeah, it's true. already, uh, the tension is already racket, sorry, ratcheting not, up here. Sorry about this, that. I wasn't aware of this. I, I thought maybe out of solidarity, you'd pretend to at least kind of be happy whoever won that game. But, uh, but, but no, that's okay. That's okay. I can Jordan, bounce back from this one. That's all right. It's early. Jordan, uh, I got a, I have a question for you. Growing up or, or even since you've been in college, how frequently do you watch the film Hoosiers? Because I, my high school basketball coach was from Indiana and he would, he would literally watch it like three times a year. It was a very big deal. Is do you, do you watch Hoosiers at least once a year? You know, I feel like I'm being a bad Hoosier by saying I don't, but I <laughs> think at watching movies. It's so bad. Um, I watched it growing up and then I don't know if it was just cause like I got to experience the like culture firsthand that just, I don't know. I just yeah. know we don't watch it all the time, but, um, you know, it's, I would say it's pretty accurate in many ways, obviously different yeah. time, but yeah. <laughs> How many, how many Bobby Knight red sweaters do you and your husband own collectively? Oh my gosh. Well, here's this funny thing. We've been trying to simplify our lives and I keep finding like everywhere from the, from the red sweater to all of the gear, all of the football gear. I mean, and the football players would get multiple pieces of apparel every year. So I'm like, how do we have 17 red zip ups and four pairs of the same red sweatpants and 800 red socks? But it's like, you want to get rid of them to simplify your life. But then it's like that, you know, those things that have so much meaning that it's hard to actually part with. Mm -hmm. So we just have this giant chest in our house of clothes that doesn't really get worn, but it's there in case we need to prove we have it. (laughs) So, so you're, you've decided to keep them for sentimental value instead of, instead of just getting rid of them. Yes. And we've also gifted some to family members, you know, uh, my brothers, you know, my husband was was like, I'm going to give some to my brother-in-law. He's a Hoosier as well. He's a Hoosier grad or IU grad. So, so it's worked out. We've been able to to, to kind of uh, disperse them a little bit to uh, yeah. distribute them is the word I'm looking for. Distribute them a little bit, but we still have quite the collection. And it's uh, unfortunately most of it is his, so it's too big for was me. This, uh, was this was this inspired by a Marie Kondo situation? Did you uh, did did you see some of that and were like, okay, it's time for it. we got to cut down on the yes, red sweater collection? And it was tough because it's like, man, these red sweaters spark joy, and I don't know how to part <laughs> oh, yeah, with them. Yeah. The amount of them don't spark joy, but each one sparks joy. And so, what do you do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's my problem with simplifying is I have way too much that almost all my material possessions spark joy for me. So I'm going to be, I'm going to end up like a storage unit person. I think that's like, I think I like your idea of starting with like a chest in your house and having things in there, but I can already tell for me that I'm going to outgrow that soon. I'm going to need like a a, a storage unit where I just hold all the old baseball cards and like fun run t-shirts from over the years. Cause I don't know when I'll be in a sentimental mood and want to rifle through them again. You know? Okay. Okay. So I have, I have a really weird relationship with storage units. Um, if we can just talk about this for a second, two things. First thing is when my husband and I first got married, he had just gotten, he had just been released from the Steelers. He played professionally for a little while. And so we were like, okay, shoot, neither of us have jobs. All of a sudden, what are we doing with our lives? I had a part-time blog and part-time photography business, but we didn't have like, neither of us had a stable 
job, if you will. And so yeah. he said, well, let's move. We were in Indianapolis at that point. And he said, let's move back to my hometown, which was Phoenix, Arizona, because that's where his training was. And he had coaching and he had all the all the uh, resources there that he would need to try to train and get back in the NFL. And so we didn't even get to unpack our wedding gifts. I mean, we had three of the same blender that we just had to shove into a storage closet and we drove across the country. We lived there with his grandparents for a brief stint. And then we got an apartment, lived out there for about a year. So I didn't even get to break into my wedding gifts that I was so excited to use until about a year after we got married. And then that's like a personal story with a storage locker. But then literally last night, I don't know if y'all have ever heard of that um, Amazon series, Sneaky Pete. Have you heard of that? Do y'all know what I'm talking about? I have. I have not watched it, but I'm familiar with it. Okay, so we're like probably far too far into this show, to be honest. But we aren't big. We haven't watched a whole lot of movies recently, but we've been into these crime shows. And we started watching Sneaky Pete. And literally yesterday's episode was there was this, uh, basically the family owns this bail bond business, short story. And one of the prisoners that they were trying to take back to jail for some reason, they had to store in a storage or a, a storage locker, a storage unit, just like we were talking about, so that this bad guy who was trying to kill her couldn't get to her. And it it was just like the scariest thing because then they found her in the storage locker and I'm like, you know, hiding under my blanket, like peeking out, like, is he going to get her in this? And she's like trapped. (laughs) And she's this pregnant woman who was supposed to be in jail, but she's in a storage locker. I don't want to ruin it. But anyways, it like made me feel for her. And so I'm like, man, I just don't love this storage locker situation. (laughs) It's the whole, (laughs) the whole storage locker culture. Like I love storage wars that like where they, where they, where they bid on delinquent storage units, but but it takes a, a certain kind of like outlaw to even mm-hmm. want to participate in something like that. Right. Right? Like <laughs> when I was in, I went to like a Christian college and they had restrictions on like co-ed spaces, like basically like girls and guys weren't allowed to be in each other's dorm rooms. And mm-hmm. so there wasn't a, like a lot. I mean, you go to like coffee shops and stuff, but I, I literally had friends who would rent storage units <laughs> and go to thrift stores <laughs> and, and outfit them with furniture no just so like we could have like, like a co-ed, like space where people can can hang out he ended up just <laughs> moving into the storage unit it's, it seemed very uncomfortable and very very cold but that, I, i'll say this wait, it's very cheap how rent, does he, you know? like what about making food and bathroom and like other like, <laughs> what is that how does that work I think he was using like a local gym's bathroom or something like that. Wow, that is creative. But this wasn't the type of person that was overly concerned with hygiene, believe it or not. He, I would he imagine. Was, I would he, imagine. He was a survivor, you know? <laughs> it's like the storage unit's the only solution if you're a college student and need $30 a month for rent. There you go. I mean, right, you won't have, you I think he was running like an extension cord from like a plug he found outside. He had a whole setup in there. So <laughs> wow. there's That's a great, yeah, yeah. I it's very impressed. impressive what you can do with the storage unit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we have a really good show coming up today. We've also got, in addition to Jordan, Gallant is going to be joining us to talk about his brand new album, Sweet Insomnia. Uh, looking forward to that conversation. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to do Slices. You're listening to Now I'm In It by Haim. At the beginning of the podcast, you heard Guts 
by Augustine. Uh, and now it's time we're going to go into slices. Uh, this is where we each bring a an, an interesting piece of news that we found for the week to discuss amongst ourselves. Jordan, uh, I, I'm aware that you didn't bring anything, so you're just going to have to react in real time to the stories that Jesse I and I are bringing to the to the podcast here. So it's time for slices. Jesse, what do you got? Okay. Well, Jordan, I'm, I'm excited to hear your perspective on this. Uh, this is a, a story that we covered uh, a few months ago when it was first kind of teased, but now it, it's this new feature on Instagram is formally rolling out because Jordan, you have a very impressive, you have like over 300,000 Instagram followers. That's a, that's a pretty impressive following. Well, thank you. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I, I'm kind of I'm interested to hear uh, uh, what you think of this news because I can kind of see this one both ways. So Instagram is is going to start this week rolling out a new feature where it'll be hiding likes on posts. And so basically, like when, you, you know, when you're scrolling Instagram, you won't be able to see how many people liked a certain piece of content. Now, their they told they their explanation for this. This is what the, the head of Instagram told Bloomberg. They said, what we're hoping to do is depressure Instagram a little bit and make it a little bit less of a competition. The idea is to try and reduce uh, reduce anxiety and social comparison, specifically with an eye toward young people. This is like a pretty big move for Instagram. Tyler and Jordan, what do you guys both think of them removing likes from individual hmm. posts? Well, I am, I feel like kind of what you said, there's probably pros and cons. I think with any change in anything, there's pros and cons. When I first heard that several months ago, kind of my initial reaction was, I would say not surprised, um, but curious. And the more that it's yeah. been explained, I think okay. it actually makes a lot of sense. Um, one thing that I find interesting, and now this could just be hearsay and feel free to pitch in on or your opinion and or what you have heard. But from my understanding, the founders of these social media companies do not allow their own children to actually use the platforms. I think given the, hmm. you know, the algorithm tends to, from what I understand, favor you know, they want to keep people on their platform longer. So the entire platform is built to ultimately figure out ways to keep you staring at your screen longer, right? And that increases yeah. their ad dollars and purchasing power and all these other sure. things. And so from my understanding as to how the app works, um, I think it's it's a it's a healthy move in many ways. I don't necessarily know if that actually resolves the problems because I think yeah. the reality and from what I understand as a viewer and as a user you still see how your posts are performing, right? We have to be able to do that especially as creators, anybody who, you know, uses it for something more than just for fun. And so they are from what I understand leaving that feature. Do you know specifically if that's true? Because from what I understand as a, as a creator or as someone who posts something, I can still see how many likes it gets. So while I definitely think it could cut down on the comparison factor, I think comparison yeah. also is so much bigger than just how many likes. I also think it's what someone's showing and what they're up to in their life and what what's in the photo content or the video content or, you know, the big milestone they're sharing. I think comparison is so much bigger than just, Oh, she got 10 more likes than I did. You know? So yeah. I just, kind of wonder how effective it will really be. I think it's a great uh, effort and I think it's worth trying. Um, but there's, I just feel like there's so much more to the picture than just the likes component. Would you agree or would you disagree? 
Yeah, I definitely think it's like a symptom of a bigger problem. Yeah. And I think I think honestly, like part of like even the whole construct of a lot of social media, uh, you know, going back to like Facebook and then you see uh, you see it on Twitter and Instagram and, and basically all of them now is like we like express our approval with little icons that are like hearts or mm-hmm. like, you know, or like a thumbs up. It's like literally this kind of one click approve, like approval mm-hmm. of other people's kind of ideas and actions, mm-hmm. which I definitely think it isn't inherently unhealthy, mm-hmm. but it does seem like the, that whole construct of like, ultimately like we're out there looking for other people's approval through this kind of symbolic action that they do, you know, by, by liking content, I could see how that gets unhealthy, but I think you're right. I don't know if it like cuts to the core of the problem Mm -hmm. or if it just, you know, alleviates one of the symptoms of it. Tyler, what what do you, what do you think about removing likes? Yeah, I think you both are really on the right track. I agree with this. I I think that, uh, Instagram, which is obviously owned by Facebook, they're not going to be doing anything that's going to be hurting their bottom dollar. And this feels like kind of one of those ways sometimes that big companies like this will offload the obvious issues with their platform onto the users. Mm-hmm. They can make it seem like they're doing something that's sort of socially responsible by saying, well, this way we'll hide the, the likes so mm-hmm. that, you know, you all won't be, feel quite as tempted as you were before to be comparing each other when the, issue is so much bigger and more systemic and it would involve them doing things that would actually hurt the way they do business mm-hmm. and the, mm-hmm. the type of ads that they run and the uh, and the mm-hmm. donors that they talk to. So I, I think that real change, like real important change, which I do hope comes to these major companies, uh, I think it would look like something very different, probably not something they particularly want to do. Mm-hmm. So the fact that they're doing this makes me think that it's a, it's a Band-Aid on a, a problem that is a lot lot deeper and more systemic and uh, it's not really the it's not really the consumer's fault do you know what mm-hmm. i mean yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah it's it, it, it seems like the, that the the original t- intention of some of these platforms has has evolved in a way that i i think it's positive that they're making some changes to them so well i sure. I, I want i want to bring one more news story about a product christmas is coming up and I know we're all looking for for those perfect gifts for people. And there is a a, a gentleman named Yosef uh, Lerner who un, uh, who unveiled his new product. It's called the Pedestrian Horn. And so, Chandler, in a second, I'm going to get you to cue up the video because he really pitches it pretty well. But while this while this short video is playing, picture a guy walking through the crowded streets of New York City wearing a steering wheel around his neck. And just blasting the horn as he sees people uh, out on the street. Chandler, here, here, play a little clip of this video. These are cars. These are people. What if people were cars? Would you do this? <laughs> and 
the remainder of the video is just him walking around beeping his little horn at people. So I, I think this guy is the genius of our time because there's like there's no more conflicted relationship that I feel like human beings have with any invented device as like a car horn. Like you're either a car horn person or you're not like I feel like you're you're either the type of person if you use a car horn, I feel like you use it regularly or you've only used it like twice in your life. Mm-hmm. Jordan, how okay. often do you use your car horn? <laughs> I think I'm one of those that has probably used it twice, maybe three times in my life. This is the like house divided situation we always have because my husband lives for the for the horn. And I'm always like, no, that's so rude. Don't honk at them. <laughs> <laughs> Tyler, are you are you? A, I, I know you well enough Tyler, that I feel and, and Chandler, too. I, I think I can go on a limb that you guys are never horn people. That's, yeah, that's accurate. It's really, yep. it's really rare. Yeah. But I have it, but I have a, but I have a co-pilot. If my wife is in me, then it is not (laughs) infrequent that she'll reach. She, she has reached over uh, many times to like, I'll be in charge, you know, I'll be handling like the brakes and and the wheel and things like that. And she'll navigate the horn situation. So so, as talking to three never horn people, Mm -hmm. I, I'm a big fan of the horn. Yeah. I feel like you've got a, you probably like the horn quite a bit now. Yeah. Oh, I do. And I, I like it because I've mastered, I've mastered the the like it's okay I'm not mad to like horn toot that's the key guys is like because like let's say you're at a stoplight right and it turns green and the person in front of you you can see they're texting or they're liking something on Instagram you know the, if if it's a if it's if it's a, a, a like a blowing the horn of about a second and a half that's will it you could start a fight in the intersection but if you really careful just doot doot boop boop yeah, it yeah. sends the message. I'm here. I'm friendly. I'm a friend back here. So I think I think you guys just need a little technique. But I love this guy's invention because the one thing about, about honking the horn that makes it uncomfortable is when someone looks through the window and they can see you doing it. It's the reason that you guys don't like tooting the horn because you don't want that awkward eye contact of like someone looking back like, come on, you're someone's honking um, at me. What do you think, Jordan? I think I forget that it's there. I think that's part of yeah. it. And then it's just so loud that I, I like, I like the, uh, the input on the technique. I've never really thought about car horn technique before, but why not? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, I think that's genius. Cause usually it's that loud, like it's like nails on a chalkboard for me. It's just unpleasant. So that's why I'm actually yeah. not a fan of this Christmas gift idea. Cause I'm like, Oh my gosh, that's only going to make the problem worse. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I find that very interesting that there are apparently now I'm learning from what you just shared different, uh, different ways yeah. in which to communicate what you're saying. So I don't know. Normally I think I just forget that it's there. And then after it's, I've had one situation, which I think has made me a little bit more hesitant to use the horn where, it might happen once or twice now um, where like I forget that the horn's there and then something happens. Somebody cuts me off or something. And like, you know, those awkward like four seconds pass. And then I remember the horns there and then I hit it and I'm like, well, now it's completely pointless. And I just look ridiculous. So I think I'm just not yeah. good with my timing, to be honest. I forget it's there. And then by the time I remember, it's too late. <laughs> Oh, I, I'm using the horn instantly. If I think someone's about to cut me off, I'll, a long, a prolonged blast of the horn along with a death stare does a lot of good. It says, stay in your lane, stay in your lane. I saw what you're trying there. I, I'm for the safety of everyone. But the pedestrian, <laughs> the pedestrian horn, which he's only making a handful of and he's charging like $700 for. Uh, the great thing about it is like it was only going to appeal to a certain type of person, like the worst type of confrontational person out there. Like, like someone who is just like looking, it's the person and Jordan, you're a football fan. If you were, if you were 
to go, like, let's say Indiana was going to Nebraska to play mm-hmm. in, in Nebraska. Let me ask you this. Don't do, do this. you wear do you wear Indiana gear into the other stadium or are you just like, you know, I don't want con- I don't want conflict today. I'll cheer for my team, but I want to put up with the awkwardness. Are you wearing the gear to another team stadium? Oh, yeah, I think that's yeah. That's so I'm like a walking contradiction is basically what we're talking now, because I'm mm-hmm. like not wanting confrontation with a with a horn, but I will gladly wear my my Hoosier sweatshirt into any stadium. <laughs> See, I can't do it. I, I, I don't even like wearing I don't even like wearing if I'm not like locally cheering for a team, if I'm like at like I went I watched football at like a like this, you know, like pizza place has like a big sports party. I didn't even want to wear team gear there because I'm like, I don't know who's there. I don't know who's going to try to mix it up with me, but I am the type that would probably use the pedestrian horn to blast strangers just randomly. <laughs> well, we know a lot about, you now. I was just a couple weeks ago. I, I was, I, I was, I got back from Paris and was over there. I know there's a stereotype about the French people being very rude. Not my experience. Everybody over there that I talked to was for the most part, extremely pleasant and uh, nice to be around. But there was one time when I was on a train and a man heard me talking, heard my my me, me speaking English, my American accent, and just launched right in to this to this lengthy and very in depth diatribe about politics and and the, the situation in the Middle East and the U.S. involvement over there, like just without giving me a chance to. You know, what side I was coming from, you yeah. know, what, what are you thinking about? Are you from America? You know, there was none of that. It was just like, bam. I feel like that's what the horn, that mm. guy needed a horn to like announce his, because <laughs> all he could do was shout. Yeah. Yeah. He could have, he could have, uh, introed with the beep, beep. I have uh-huh. a pleasant conversation coming with someone who appears to be a different customer, but what he from a different country, what he did, he just came blasting through the intersection, mm-hmm. horn blasting like he's got some kind of emergency. You know, that that's that's yeah, that's just the wrong technique. That's all. He could have averted that very easily. So, yeah, well, now we know. All right. So my slice is uh, is kind of of the same. Uh, it's a, we're, we're all kind of uh, on a similar energy today, I think. So this was an interesting uh, study that came out. Uh, so some data analysis came out from BuzzFeed News today. And I think we're all familiar that with, about the stereotype of the entitled millennial, right? And the millennials are, are moochers. They, 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 they're just waiting for government handout. They just want to get their YouTube channel going or, or <laughs> to get Instagram famous enough that they don't have to work anymore. And until then, they're just going to sit around and, and wait for their, the trust fund to come in, right? We've all heard the stereotype and are probably, mm-hmm. uh, already a little skeptical yeah. of it. Yeah, I, 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 I tend to be an, a millennial apologist. I feel like uh-huh. I feel like our generation gets 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 a pretty, pretty mm-hmm. undeserved rap. Um, yeah, some some unfair, some unfair hate on that. I was nevertheless still surprised by some of the things that this study found. So BuzzFeed looked at the the survey of income and program participation. It's carried out by the U.S. Census Bureau. Just finds out the way that different people in America are spending their money, and they found about 1.4 million American millennials are financially supporting their parents right now. That is almost equal, it's statistically indistinguishable from the number of boomers who are financially supporting their adult children right now. So there are as many millennials who are helping float their parents financially Mm. as there are 
parents who are helping float their children financially. And what they found a lot of times is that the stereotype of the millennial who moves back in with their parents, like sleeping on their couch or in the basement or whatever, a lot of times that's a mutually advantageous situation. Yeah. Um, they're both, they're chiming in together for rent, for the mortgage, uh, or the, they ask their kids to move back in as they're getting older and they have more health difficulties or, uh, that they need help, uh, the, the kid can pay a little bit of rent basically as a landlord, uh, and that will help them make ends meet. So it's not a, it's never, even when it is a kid who is living with their parents, it's not always as straightforward as the kid just couldn't make it on their mm-hmm. own. So yeah. this should, uh, but probably won't put that stereotype to rest. But I was really surprised. Do, do you, does that line up with your like anecdotal understanding of the way a lot of our millennial peers live? Yeah, I mean, I I feel like there is that stereotype, like the failure to launch stereotype, like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, there's uh, millennials in their early 30s, you know, living in the basement or whatever, where I, I, I haven't really like observed that. But I, I think, too, there's like really no shame either way. Like if you're if so. you're an adult and you're making the decision to, you know, live with family, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And if you're someone who is like in the boomer generation and decide, hey, it makes more sense on a lot of avenues to move back in with my adult children. I don't think there's any shame there either. I, I think it's the, the, the kind of weird thing is I feel like in in especially in like our modern culture, both of those to some degree. It's not like I, I don't know if shame's the right word, but you know, but neither of those are necessarily looked at as like positives when you look at mm-hmm. a lot of other cultures where it's not uncommon to have multiple generations under one roof. I, I you know, I think it's a positive thing for the millennial generation that it's working both ways. But I think kind of like the insinuation in general that it's a negative, I kind of question that to a degree. Yeah. Yeah, I do too. I feel like there's kind of a couple different thoughts on it, like a two prong approach almost, because um, I think there's a part. Uh, well, first thing, kind of like you mentioned about other cultures, what I find interesting is I think I think in our culture that's so um, individualistic. I think that, like you mentioned, the approach across the board, it's wrong, it's bad, you know, it's not good or it's shameful. Um, I think it can be unhealthy and damaging in some ways. Um, and I think it's also a reminder of the important, I think like, I don't know if y'all are familiar with Jeff Bethke, he's a good friend of ours. And he, he does this whole thing called family sure. teams. And it's kind of pushing a little bit against this notion of, you know, we're all individuals, like meaning, okay, you go do your thing. I go do mine thing, you know, and we all come back and see each other on holidays. You know, I think there's this lost art in the American culture of the family team and how, you know, you look back hundreds of years, it was the family business, the family farm. You know, when my husband and I decided to work together, I felt like a lot of people even looked at us like, are you sure that's going to ruin your marriage? And I kind of was challenged Hmm. by that. I think in a similar way of thinking, well, if we're family, right. And we're building a family together and building a life together, there's like this built-in team. I like, I I love the the mentality that the family was like the first government technically that God set up, right. The first like institution or like Hmm. uh, unit, if you will. And so I think in some ways we've lost the ability to appreciate the team or the family as a team that can work together to move culture, to move, uh, you know, their own uh, well-being, their own livelihood. So I think there's that perspective. But then I also think kind of on the same note, it's very interesting that statistic you brought up because um, I'm also a huge, I would say in some ways, um, millennial advocate in that I think millennials are actually very creative. And I think they, like you said, have gotten a bad rap. Um, in some ways. And I've actually found, you know, most millennials I know 
are actually typically looking for strategic and creative and new ways to not only make a living, but to also make an impact. And, um, that that's been very interesting to me to observe, but you know, I think it's, I think it's a careful balance because I also don't want to come from the perspective of like, Oh no, we should never say it's wrong or shameful because I don't think it's healthy to give a green light to, uh, you know, make sure we're not, I guess the best way to say it is we also want to make sure that we are being, I guess, proactive, you know, I, I guess, I guess it's, it's a, it's a situational yeah. thing. Cause like you shared, there's situations where it's like, this makes complete sense, or this is the best thing for this family. But in other way, another, I think perspective just to kind of play devil's advocate is like, but is that, let's not make that an excuse either for people not to grow up. And so it is a very, like, I think challenging issue. And I don't think there is an across the board, like perfect response, but I think it's something to be challenged by for sure. I definitely, I definitely think millennials are the most creative generation because mm-hmm. that guy who was my friend who lived in a storage unit and cooked grilled cheese sandwiches on a thrift store iron, guess what? He's a millennial and he's living his best life. He figured out a way to live in a storage unit. And so, but no, I, there was another study that kind of as related to this, Barna did a study, I think they did World Vision, um, and it looked at basically young adults, like kind of millennial aged uh, Christians and, um, you know, why they have like left the church and, you know, what are, what are their thoughts about how connected they are to their community? And one, they, one interesting and kind of like heartbreaking thing that was part of this study um, that kind of just indicated some of the values of the generation that, or some of the needs that were going unmet was that more uh, that uh, only one third. So 33% said they feel deeply cared for by those around them. And obviously, you know, kind of the implication of this survey is like, well, Maybe the church can do a better job of of creating communities where people actually feel like the people around them care for. But I think also just having a, a more uh, being more socially acceptable to spend a lot of time with your family and to to live with your family as needed. That's got to be better than the alternative, which is isolation and and disconnection. You know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was something this study found that, that we've kind of hinted at is that for a lot of the people moving in with their family or, or their family or vice versa, uh, this was something that's in that's very cultural for them. A lot of people, especially immigrant population, come from countries where this isn't this is an expected thing to do. So the sort of shame that's being heaped on this idea of it is a very you know this is a very Western and a very American idea. And instead of saying what we seeing what we could learn from that, and, and of course it's true that there the, you need to have a case by case basis mentality mm-hmm. for all these things because of course there are bad lazy reasons to move in with your family. Mm-hmm. The, the the person who's doing it like just to uh, to finish their screenplay and five years mm-hmm. later, they yeah. still haven't quite gotten through act two yet. Mm-hmm. And there's some questions there that you got to ask about. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like based on this study, that is not happening in any sort of appreciably greater yeah. levels than it has for past generations. I'll, I'll say this for any parents out there looking to make sure that their adult children come to visit. Take a parent, take a, a, a page out of my parents playbook. Keep the fridge stocked with awesome food that they that your kids only ate as a child. Like I didn't even know toaster strudels was still in business. Yet I go home, <laughs> I go visit my parents, there's a whole freezer full. And I'm in there, I'm in there, you know, microwaving them and doing the little frosting packets on top. That's the key. It's just keeping obscure snacks readily available. So it's like incentivizes a visit. No one's gonna no one's gonna complain when they got dunkaroos in the pantry. Okay. Like it's 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 a flashback. 
back to a more innocent time. So parents, if you want your millennial children to come home, just go on Amazon and buy some like surge and some weird stuff that they, the health department has long discontinued and stock that, fr- that fridge and that pantry because that'll get them back to the door. Deal, deal fine. When you go back, we're coming up on the holidays. We'll be traveling a little bit. Probably going, a lot of us going to see our, see our parents. I don't get a, get a, a minor in Nebraska. So it's a little bit of a haul for me. Do you find that when and you they, go and back? They're living, and, they, and that whole state has been living in shame for a few weeks ago, <laughs> yeah, right? Jordan? I don't even know if they're going to allow me in. They're still trying to come bounce back a little bit. Um, do you find that when you go back to your parents' house, you, you like regress immediately like 20 years back to being 17 again? <laughs> like you, you just immediately turn oh, come into... come on, Dad! <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> like you wake up in the morning, go to make breakfast, something I've been doing on my own for over half my life at this point. And I'm like, Mom, where's the peanut butter Captain Crunch? <laughs> I revert back to, you know, I'm like the most... Uh, like I, I, I hate when dishes are left out in my house. I hate when somebody yeah. forgets to put something in the sink. Like, it's just like my thing, you know, I'm just like, please just put the dish away. And I go back to my parents' house and it's like, I revert to like, someone else is going to pick that up. Like I just leave stuff. <laughs> I, yeah. I'm like yeah. the biggest hypocrite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that, and they're so happy that you're home because the other thing is, too, parents when you come visit, they just offer you random things like, "Oh, can I make you a snack? Would you like a cold drink?" Yes, yes, yes. yes. Just serve me, mom. See, please. this is the incentive to move out. Life. Here's a, here's the thing. I think if there's a here's the two here's the two thoughts that I have. First thing is I wanted to piggyback off of what y'all were saying briefly and say that I think a lot of students or a lot of not students, a lot of adults move back home temporarily. A lot of times when they're uh, trying to start a business of their own or create something out of nothing, which I think is actually quite admirable and smart. Um, But the second thing I wanted to say too, is I think it's also an incentive a little bit to go out on your own at, you know, when you're like, okay, knowing I'm going to go home and I don't actually have to like do the chores and I'm treated like a guest and I'm cooked for, and I have my peanut butter captain crunch. It's like, I think that also can serve as incentive (laughs) to say, I'm going to go. And when I come back, it's going to be even better. (laughs) Peanut, <laughs> peanut butter Captain Crunch. See, you're making me want to like go visit my parents this afternoon. Like, <laughs> hey guys, let me know what obscure cereals you got because I know you got a pantry full. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. I think that'll wrap it up for Slices. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Gallant's going to join us. Listening to Darkest Hour by Low Roar. Well, Gallant is a singer and songwriter who has received critical acclaim for his unique brand of R&B. On his latest album, Sweet Insomnia, Gallant opens up about mental health, heartbreak, and the power of seeing both the good and the bad during life's hard moments. We recently spoke with Gallant about the album, vulnerability, and what it was like playing Christian college shows with Sufjan Stevens. Jesse, I think you handled this one, right? Yeah, I was really excited to talk to Gallant. You know, 2016's uh, Ology was such a great like breakout uh, yeah. album you know that was where he really popped on my radar for the first time and uh and has been has been on it ever since he's awesome yeah and so he, with his new album which is called sweet insomnia you know it's actually tonally like lyrically pretty different and musically i feel like it's a big step forward but i think what a lot of people will know and will kind of notice right off the bat is kind of 
there's less ambiguity when it comes to the lyrical content. And he pretty much uh-huh. uh, like tackles the idea of, of mental health and real vulnerability and transparency head on. And I want to ask him about that and what it was like being so transparent with his music. And here's what he said. I mean, I think, you know, like luckily people are kind of cool with that. And, you know, people are talking about it, you know, openly. Um, and then also, like, I'm in a place where, you know, like when I was in college, you know, I dealt with a lot of, like, depression. And, you know, I've, I've been, I've, I've gone to therapy for like, you know, seven, eight years. So um, I was just kind of used to being in this, uh, this, like, cycle of constantly, like, you know, dealing with it or trying to get through it. And I feel like I was finally able to get to a place where, you know, I'm a little bit post everything, even though obviously, you know, it, or like erase it completely from your life. Um, but I feel like, you know, what I was saying with the the whole bittersweet thing, like challenging everything, it's like, you know, I, I, I have gotten to a point where I'm able to see the world as like, you know, it's like you're looking at everybody and you see like an x-ray, you know, like you see the good and the bad and the ugly, but the beautiful at the same time. So um, I think in this instance, I was able to just kind of, use my relationship with depression and my struggles with mental health to just kind of uh, open myself up to create something that's just based on my, my newfound point of view uh, instead of just kind of wallowing in it or, you know, brooding. It's interesting to see an artist like him really embrace that degree of vulnerability. And I think it says a lot, not just about him as an artist, but us us culturally kind of being more comfortable Mm -hmm. kind of dealing with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and I've, I'm glad he's been able to find uh, that. It sounds like the reception has been pretty positive because I don't think that's a given for anybody to be opening up in really ambiguous ways about something that doesn't have a lot of concrete uh, answers to it, obviously, or any concrete answers you try to give obviously sound pretty pat. Uh, it's cool that he has not faced the sort of uh, that that risk has paid off for him. It sounds like yeah, yeah, for sure. The other the other benefit of kind of being this vulnerable and kind of open, it's changed his relationship and the dynamics that he has with his fans. Um, hmm. It's actually, you know, how he approaches his live show, how he interacts with people. And here's how Galan explained it to him. Yeah. I mean, I remember when I was doing my first tour in like 2016 and 20 and even like support tours, um, uh, like in 2017, I, you know, I didn't talk to anybody on stage. Uh, like I never really addressed the audience. Uh, it was just, it was like my moment for me to just kind of do whatever in that space. And it was like very self indulgent, uh, not always in a bad way, like just very therapeutic, you know? So, um, I feel like as times has kind of increased and I've been able to meet more people who connected with my point of view and just the way that my worldview has kind of shifted, which everyone goes through. It's just like growing up, you know, I feel like I found more, like I have more fun, you know, now, like, interacting with my audience um, at every show. Like, I have more fun, like, smiling at photos and meeting fans and talking to them, and, you know, deeply and finding out about their life and how my music played a role in it, if it, if it did, or how somebody else's music played a role in their life, if that did. Um, it just feels like, naturally, I've, I've, I feel more connected to my, my, like, audience, you know? So I think... Um, it might've been like 50, 50 kind of conscious trying to challenge myself to have that kind of relationship. But then the other 50 is just naturally I've, I've somehow fallen into that kind of back and forth. And, um, I'm excited to tour this album 
because I only know, I know it's just going to increase exponentially. Um, so if anything, I think having this project has just opened me up to being able to experiment more with just the impact that the music has on, uh, on those. Yeah. I, I really like that. I, I, the other thing too, is like when I see a show, I like it when the artist interacts a little and you get to see oh, sure. like sure. something that's not just uh, like a persona, but you know, the real artist and you're going to get to see the real person behind the lyrics. So it's cool that it's, you know, it's almost like it's freed him up. This kind of emotional vulnerability has freed him up to mm-hmm. kind of interact in interesting ways with his fans. Uh, and kind of speaking of interacting in interesting ways with fans, you know, uh, Gallant's music is uh, in no way I, I would think I would think it would be classified as like religious music in any in any. You know, <laughs> he seems those things a lot about heartbreak. I don't think he's overly religious himself. But back in 2016, he found himself sort of in this interesting spot because Ology was blowing up. It was get, it, getting these incredible reviews. And he was also working on like kind of a side project of ambient music. And that caught the attention of Sufjan Stevens, who Huck, well, what, what's your what's your uh, what's your Sufjan Stevens take real quick? Oh, oh I'm all in on Sufjan. Yeah. Uh, did you know this? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big I was in I was living in Chicago when like Illinois came out. So I was I was, you know, a, a white a white Christian college kid living in Chicago when Illinois dropped. I was prime. I, I was target market for that. It, I was a bullseye for the whole Sufjan Stevens thing. So he's still and ever since then. I've been a he he's, has a pretty important place. He's in my like my Mount Rushmore of singer songwriters. Yeah, for sure. For sure. You and know? the the. Uh, the other interesting thing is like when Sufjan Stevens co-signs an artist, you're like, okay, I got to listen up. And that's what, you know, it, that's what he did with Gallant because it wasn't just, uh, you know, him taking Gallant out on tour. You know, they actually collaborated a bit together. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. And, you know, he, when he brought Gallant out on tour, they had a couple stops at like Christian colleges, which mm-hmm. is super interesting. <laughs> and no one found it more interesting and than Gallant himself, who <laughs> didn't really know how the audience, didn't really know why he was there or what the audience reaction was going to be. But he was really, as he explains it, kind of pleasantly surprised with the reaction that he's gotten. Here is, here how, is, is how Gallant talked about that tour. I don't, it's weird, man. I feel like the Christian college thing is funny because I think they they might have heard like some of my lyrics and like bone and tissue, maybe like uh, I'm like sell me something I can use to like catapult my value and I talk about preachers and shit. Um, and for me, I'm like kind of making fun <laughs> of it in a way. And I think to them, it kind of they interpreted it as like me, you know. Just, I don't know. I don't know how they how they kind of derive Christianity from it, but. Um, it's funny because even like Suzyon's music has the same kind of like ambiguity. Like sometimes he'll make religious references, but then I can't tell if he's if he's being like you know if he if he has reverence for that or if he's like approaching it with cynicism. Um, but that was like a really fun tour. Um, I feel like I was also really scared too to do that because I think at the time I had like an EP called Zebra, and it was all this ambient music. And he had only heard like, you know, maybe I think like a couple of those really like ambient tracks. And when I went on tour, I was doing more music from my album. So it was a lot more aggressive and a lot louder. Um, But his audience, I I think, was just so down and open minded that they were able to kind of take that in. And then 
that gave me a, like a segment of his fan base that appreciated where I was coming from that kind of carried over into, you know, the pop sphere, you know, allow me to do things or even deeper in the alternative sphere. So it's, it's kind of weird. Like it's the audience that like I, I've built so far, it does remind me of like the, you know, the audience, my friends growing up in Columbia, Maryland, just come, coming from all different walks of life and having a bunch of different perspectives. Some people liking very simplistic, you know, commercialized music that has like an ounce of soul in it. And then other people liking very like, he just ripped out of a diary, like punk music sensibility. So, um, it, I'm sure it like makes it a nightmare from like a, like a, a suit and ties perspective. But, um, for me, like, I'm just, it's, it's, it's a blessing to be able to meet so many different people that all, you know, feel like they could be my, my childhood friends. I, lo- I love that perspective, that idea of, uh, you know, the kind of gracious response he received, he received from Sufi fans and, and even listeners at some of these Christian colleges and how, you know, because we talked quite a bit more about his upbringing and how he grew up with, you know, a pretty diverse group of friends who are into different kinds of music. And now he's at a point in his career where he's kind of incorporating different ideas from that type of music. But it kind of built up his confidence back in 16, touring with Sufjan. And 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 as he's preparing this, the, his latest album, Sweet Insomnia, uh, y- you know, to bring in influences from different types of music fans. So it's kind of, it was cool to talk about that evolution. Yeah, I think that's super interesting. And it seems like he, he, I can see why him and Sufjan were attracted to each other musically, because they both just seemed interested, not just in like new kinds of music, but in different sounds and experimental ways yeah. of, of, uh, not just like combining different music styles, but creating entirely different ones that you really wouldn't, if Gallant wasn't making the kind of music he made, nobody would be making it. There's not a lot yeah. of comparisons. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So it was definitely cool to talk to him, uh, hear his perspective, and it's fun to listen to the album. It's called Sweet Insomnia, and it is out now. That was uh, Galan. We appreciate him coming on with us. Listening to Sweet Insomnia by today's guest, Gallant. Okay, so we have uh, we, we have a rare opportunity here. For Jordan's joining us. It's not every it's not every week we're doing this podcast. We have we have an intellect, uh, an emotional intellect of Jordan's caliber here joining us. So we wanted to put that to good use right now. Uh, Jordan, you're a renowned speaker and writer. You specialize in helping people realize their own dreams and purpose. So here's what we're going to do. Uh, Jesse has has been on the internet trying to find the questions that our readers and listeners have. And we're going to throw some rapid fire questions at you and let you dispense like rapid fire life advice and lightning round style. Are you ready for lightning round advice, Jordan? I am as ready as I possibly can be. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, And I just want to say this, no pressure. Only a few actual lives hinge in the balance here. So no pressure. No okay. pressure at all. Perfect. You People probably won't going need to do be I, doing Do I get a disclaimer you, you, here? Do I get some sort of like, <laughs> this is not legal advice? <laughs> no, actually, I've drafted something and uh, it's in your inbox now. You'll need to get it signed and notarized because 
the stakes for this need to don't the good news is you will probably you might never meet the people whose lives hang in the balance uh, on your work so that's good reassuring. so that yeah, that's should yeah. alleviate some of the yeah. pressure in your yeah. mind it'll all be fine yeah as far <laughs> as you know it, worst case scenario they can move back with mom and dad for a while while they get on it back on their feet if your you advice go. goes horribly wrong so so right. no pressure Jordan, what is your lightning round advice for a college student who can't decide on a major? Oh, do you want to know my real opinion on this? <laughs> yes. yes. Would, Give us the real controversial one. I have a very one. polarizing view, I think, of college and being there without knowing why you're there. Uh, I had a friend recently challenge uh, my perspective by saying whenever they meet someone that's getting ready to go to college or is in college, Instead of asking the immediate question of like, where do you go to college or where are you going to go to college? They ask, why are you going to college? And I think that's a very hmm. uh, important question because I think my, my husband and I talk about this a lot, but it's not that college is not a good thing to do. It's if you're going and you're not really sure why you're there, what you're doing, and you're going into debt for it. If you are on a full ride scholarship and you're going to get out and you're going to be okay, like that's one thing. But if you're going into thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars of debt and you don't have a direction with it, you're actually, I think it would be better to take a break, to work a little bit, to get out into the world, to dig into some things that, you know, maybe trades or learn some skills or get some work experience. And then you might discover, oh, I want to specialize in this. I'm going to use that instead of just sitting here now in $100,000 of debt. Now I want to go back and get my certification or my education in this specific field. Or, hey, I just found a field that I don't actually need that for. And I'm going to go build this awesome business or build this awesome career. So I think, you know, I I think the the need in some ways for college has shifted a bit because you know I look back at my parents' generation and I think back then uh, in in just a short one generation two generations from you know now. Uh, it was very, it was less common for everyone to go to college. Now I feel like it's almost like an expected thing, right? That question is almost yeah. immediately always after someone graduates, where are you going to college, right? And I think there's so many people in college that don't actually need to be there. So if someone's like, I don't really know, I'm going into a lot of debt. I'm just kind of, you know, here. I actually say like, take a break and don't keep going into more debt until you really know, like, do I want to specialize? Do I need to get a, a degree that requires higher education, like lawyer or doctor or engineer or something like that, rather than a general studies degree? So that's just my two cents, um, you know, as I, I think college is an amazing place to grow. I just always try to warn against, you know, don't go into debt for something if you're not sure what you're doing. And I, if I could have given, if I could have gone back and given my former self that advice, I think that would have been very helpful. But thankfully I was able to not have to, or to be able to be on scholarship. But at the same time, I just, I always think about that. Like, why do we feel this pressure that we must be here? And this is the only way to succeed. So I always try to give a pressure-free approach in some ways, like let yourself explore, let yourself try some things. Yeah, I like that because there are like, there's like, you know, trade there's you know trade skills and different things mm -hmm. that people can look sometimes you just need to lay low in the storage unit and just figure things out for a while <laughs> and there's no shame in that either because like i said it's like 30 dollars a month put a big padlock on there no one's gonna bother you trust me you well trust you know me. totally and and like you said i mean i have a friend i, I know this gal she it's an amazing story very brief but basically she went to school for a little while i was like you know i don't think i, I don't think i want to be doing this and her parents said okay here's your college fund go start a business and now she has this incredibly oh, wow. successful business in Nashville. And I think it's an amazing story huh. of providing young people with different options to understand that there's more than one approach to a successful life and a successful career. Yeah, that's great advice. Well, that was a very good lightning round situation. <laughs> out of the gates, out of the gates. I feel confident about the rest of these. Okay, Jordan, what would you tell someone who wants to quit wasting so much time every night on Netflix for their phone? Delete your Netflix account. <laughs> 
delete your Instagram account. Oh, man. Oh, <laughs> um, oh man. go nuclear. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I actually have found um, just creating even location boundaries in your home or in your living space can actually be very helpful. So we have a location boundary of phones don't come into the bedroom. And I try to actually mm. build a little bit of like a bedtime routine. Like, okay, I'm going to wash my face. I'm going to stretch. I'm going to, you know, read a book for 20 minutes. And I try to do that consistently. And so it's like the last half hour of my day is spent in my bedroom where I have di- now made this rule that phones don't come in there. So even if you create a little bit of a location boundary and somewhat of a routine and try to create a little bit of consistency with that, I think our lives crave routine. And I think we've gotten so into the routine of scrolling. I mean, why do we do these actions every single day on our phones so consistently? I mean, it's literally like a religious ritual if you think about how consistently and often we (laughs) do it. And so my whole approach to that is just how can you actually do something consistently other than that and then make that a discipline. Even if it's the last 10 minutes before bed, I'm going to spend reading and my phone stays in the hallway. Like something that simple allows you not to have it next to you so that you don't reach for it. I think that's great advice. And that was the other thing. That was the other beauty of the storage unit. You know, all that corrugated steel. It was a dead zone in there. You are no, no. Yeah, or just went to storage unit. Like if it's uh, really an issue, just go live in a storage unit. (laughs) We can get through like storage unit situations looking better and better. Okay, storage it's therapy. better <laughs> storage therapy. It's like when all you have is a hammer, they all look like nail. You know what I mean? It's a, <laughs> um, all right. Well, uh, how about this one? Uh, uh, what would you say to someone who's not sure they're dating the right person for their life right now? Hmm, that's a good question. I think there's a lot more to that question. Um, obviously, there's a lot of specifics and particulars, but. I think there's a couple things. One, I I don't know if y'all can agree with this, but I sometimes feel like our dating culture and um, climate right now is almost like, I don't know if it's due to the dating apps or just like the constant interconnectedness we have on the internet, but I almost feel like there's this like pressure on people and this struggle to actually commit and to be, you know, you're, I think you're always going to have that feeling of like, well, nobody's, here's the thing. Nobody's going to be perfect. No one's going to be perfect for you. And so I think Mm -hmm. there's this heightened expectation that now exists. And I think we have access to like, this sounds weird, but like a catalog of other options in our pocket at all times, right? There's always someone else we could find on Instagram or whatever other app you might be on. And I'm not against, you know, utilizing those tools to meet someone, but I think it makes it really hard to really appreciate and enjoy the person sitting in front of you or, you know, so I think there's a few things that you need to think about. One being, what are your non-negotiables? And if you haven't established those before going into, you know, getting into a dating relationship or seeing someone more than just a few times, then I think that's going to create a lot of confusion for you as your emotions might get involved or your heart might get involved. But I always try to say like, establish your non-negotiables. You know, that might be, we have the same theological beliefs or we have the same political views or we have the same values when it Mm -hmm. comes to family or we have similar goals in life. If you have three or four non-negotiables or, you know, at least things that you're like, I don't really want to have to have conflict over these things. And, you know, then I think you have to be like, okay, well, you know, if I don't love his laugh or if I don't love her earlobes or these weird things that I think we can totally (laughs) overthink, then I think you have to say, is that a negotiable thing though? And are the core things that really matter about a partnership there? I think we can freak ourselves out. Like, is this the perfect person? So I just try to say, take the pressure off of yourself and off of the relationship, consider your non-negotiables, see if those are in line, you know, and I, I think there's just a lot of people who are very confused as to what they want. And they're so afraid to settle down because they think that's immediately settling. And that's why I think having those non-negotiables mm. is so important. And I think we really desperately need people. We need relationships, right? Like that doesn't mean we desperately need mm-hmm. to have to get married. But my point is, I just think commitment is struggling in our culture right now because there's so much distraction and so many other options. And so I just say like, 
think about what really matters. And if it's a, it's a, it's a person whose values align with yours and whose heart aligns with yours and who treats you with respect and cares about the things that you most care about, then before you just, you know, write it off because you don't like their laugh or they're kind of quirky or there's some little thing that you don't love, like you probably have some weird quirky things too. So I just try to say like have a very realistic approach because no human is perfect. Yeah. It's like the, it's like the Jerry Seinfeld thing. Like you can always find something wrong mm-hmm. with anyone, you know, no, mm-hmm. nobody's perfect. I think that's great advice. You know, I, there, uh, a last minute submission just came in here, Jordan, that I, I, I just received. And, um, I, I feel like this one needs a little context. It's, it's from an anonymous listener, but I think I know who it is. Um, <laughs> A few weeks ago, Jordan, our producer Chandler, Chandler, say hello once once again. <laughs> hey, <laughs> he he has been in an emotional dark place. Um, oh, a man. few weeks ago, he got his car towed, and ever since then, he's just never recovered. And uh, <laughs> it was a big misunderstanding. He almost missed uh, several days of work because of this. <laughs> and now I see this question come in. Here it is. What is your lightning round advice for someone who wants to get revenge on a tow truck driver who ruined their life by causing an emotionally downward spiral? I don't know who this is from. It's from Anonymous. It's from Storage Unit Dweller uh, 85. So, Jordan, uh, what would your advice be to a person who may not or may not be Chandler? You know, I always say that I think forgiveness <laughs> is always better than revenge. And let's let's apply this. Let's apply this to a bigger life lesson here. I, let's apply this to a bigger life lesson because I think we all desire somehow to get back at somebody who did something wrong or who ticked us mm-hmm. off or who totally screwed up our week. And I think the best lesson here is <laughs> to remember withholding forgiveness only hurts yourself. So I'm not pointing any fingers, but I'm just saying. <laughs> wow! Yeah, that's wow. probably good advice good because somebody my, needs that. I don't know who. I don't know, I don't who, know who, but who out somebody there needs. Somebody, but, but I hope this person is listening, and I, I hope he or she, but he takes it to heart. And yeah, yeah. And I hope I hope this person isn't late for work anymore because of this situation. I'll just throw that out there, and I hope they don't take my advice, which was to make up terrible things about this tow truck driver and post it on Yelp. Uh, just, just. Just yeah. let Yelp be re- your revenge. Either way, the path is your dear, yours, dear listener. Well, <laughs> yeah, Jordan, that was that was very wise advice. I don't that think very, yeah. I, I don't know very few people who could have given a legitimate wise answer to something as so absurd in that a situation <laughs> that our producer Chandler put you in. So very well done <laughs> with that. <laughs> Jordan, do you have time for one more? I have time for one more. Absolutely. Uh, All right. Uh, What would you say to someone who wants to make more of an impact in their community? Hmm. Go home and love your family. That's some other Teresa thing. But I think I've been learning so much this this year, just the importance of starting with your neighbors, um, starting with your own home. I think I think like we talked about with social media, looping that conversation back in. um, I think that constant almost message to be impactful, make an impact, do these things. Uh, again, I do believe we can use tools like social media to be impactful in a community. Uh, but I, I think one big conviction that I've had over the last year and a half or so, you know, uh, w- it was really like, you know, I can make an impact on people online, but I can really get into relationship uh, with people in my real life. And so it's been a really interesting shift for me from feeling like, 
I'm supposed to be doing all this big impact online to really saying, I'm going to go sit with my, my neighbor, Fran, you know, Fran is my friend. She's the best. She's like our, she's in her seventies. She and her husband live next door to us. And we've had a great time building a relationship with them. And I think tools like using, like using things like food and inviting people over for meals, hospitality is such a huge thing. And I personally don't love to host. Um, I love people, but I get over, I'm weird in like small group settings. I love, I don't mind being on stage and speaking to a crowd and I don't, and I love being one-on-one, but if it's like that awkward six people in a room, it's uncomfortable for me. Cause I'm like, well, I've had small talk with all of y'all. I'm going to go sit up in the bathroom for about an hour till everybody <laughs> leaves. Like that's kind of where I default to. Yeah. So it's like pushing myself outside my comfort zone to be like, you know what? We can invite another couple over for a bonfire or, you know, we can have a cookout and have two other couples over. Like it doesn't have to be overwhelming, but I just think really getting involved in your neighborhood, knocking on neighbors doors, like being old fashioned, taking cookies to the new neighbors, inviting people over for a bonfire, be like just getting to know your neighbors, I think is just a lost art. And that's something we've been really intentional about. And also I think a little bit more common here in the Midwest, but, um, you know, I just, I, I noticed like when we lived out in Phoenix, Arizona, nobody talked to each other. Like people would go home, shut their garage doors and go in their house. And like, that was it. I didn't know my neighbors. Nobody really knows their neighbors. It's very uncommon there comparatively. And so we've really tried to say like, what are the, what are the steps that we can actively take to make our neighbors know that we see them, that we love them, that we invite them, that we welcome them and that they're welcome at our house. You know, I grew up in a culture where our next door neighbor would walk into my parents' house and grab a jug of milk and walk out the door and not say anything. And it was just normal, you know? So not that we have to get to that degree, but I just think be welcoming and hospitable and find creative ways, whether that's through a bonfire or a cookout, people really convene over food. And I think hospitality is such an important thing that we've lost the art of. So any little way you can invite people into your home or into your into your apartment or whatever somewhat consistently make that a discipline do it once a month if that's all you can do it's crazy how like just i think empower empowering it can be not only for or impactful it can be for other people but empowering it can be for you to realize how like just valuable developing relationships in that kind of communal sense and and home comfortable neighborhood sense really is yeah, I, I I love that. As 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 listeners to this, or regular listeners know, I'm a big time neighbor guy. I know <laughs> I know everyone on the cul-de-sac. Neighbors, yeah. I'm, I'm I'm a big neighbor person. And during my uh, those few dark years in the storage unit, I knew all my storage unit community neighbors who were mostly feral cats. But uh, <laughs> again, they would come in my unit and steal my milk too. That's weird that you'd say that because my place was crawling with them and. So, but no, no, I, I, I think that's great. I, I, I think, yeah, making an impact where like tangibly where you live is really important. I think that's great mm-hmm. advice. Um, well, I think that is going to do it for our, for our lightning advice round. And, and Jordan, I, I, I can't speak for all these people. We'll see what they come back with. Uh, that was really solid advice. Thanks that's for great. being willing to be a good sport on all of that and for delivering some really tangible, good steps forward for the people in these particular situations. Yes. Hopefully their life is uh, out of limbo now. <laughs> and i think with that that will wrap it up for here for all of us here at the relevant podcast hey i want to say many thanks to gallant for joining us sweet insomnia is out now also jordan thank you so much for joining us jordan lee dooley you can follow her on instagram at jordan lee dooley jordan l-e-e-d-o-o-l-e-y thank you so much for i hope we get to do this again because this was really fun jordan oh y'all it was so fun to hang i am just honored to hang out be here laugh with you guys You bring a lot of joy to this world. So I am cheering for you and I hope to do it again soon. All right. Thanks, Jordan. 
Make sure to sign up for all of our other podcasts when you check us out on the podcast episode page. Uh, I'm Tyler Huckabee. I'm Jalen Strait. I'm Jesse Carey. I'm Jordan Lee Dooley. We'll see you next time. Have a great week, everybody. for listening to the relevant podcast if you like what you heard be sure to leave us a review on itunes check out other shows from the relevant podcast network in the podcast section at relevantmagazine.com and while you're there browse exclusive podcast merchandise at our online store make sure to subscribe to relevant magazine info is available at relevantmagazine.com forward slash subscribe Sometimes you just need to lay low in the storage unit and just figure things out for a while. Relevant Podcast Network. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.